You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, we could imagine that Abiathar looked absolutely terrible. We could imagine his eyes. Just imagine the man's eyes. Puffy and red from the hot, stinging tears that would just not stop falling down his face. Eyes just glazed over in shock and disbelief. And eyes that were tired, just tired from wave after wave of white, hot rage rising up inside of him only to drop him right back down in deep, dark despair. Abiathar's entire family had just been massacred. 85 people, 85 people, including his very own father, all priests of the Most High God, massacred by a man named Doeg at the voice, the command of King Saul, and Abiathar had escaped. And according to the text in 1 Samuel 22, Abiathar was the only one to escape. And he ran. He fled. Abiathar must have looked absolutely terrible arriving at David's doorstep at the cave of Adullam. But David took him in. David saw this man and he took him in all the same. He said, Abiathar, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be in safekeeping. I cannot just imagine the wave of relief that must have washed over this man, Abiathar, in that one moment. Stay with me. What would he have done if David hadn't said that? What if he had said, don't stay here. There's no room for you here. I'm living in a cave in exile. Who would he have turned to? Where else could he have sought refuge? Abiathar would not need to wonder, for the, the words of David were, stay with me. It's a beautiful scene. But if you were to skip ahead a few pages in the life of David, you would see yet another scene, one that strips away all of the beauty from this first one. It's 1 Kings 1. David is now old. He's no longer the spry, strapping shepherd. No longer the strong, solid warrior. But old, weak, and confined to his bed. So frail, the man could not even keep himself warm. His decline, it seems, brought great excitement to his son, Adonijah. He saw his father's weakness as his own opportunity to capture his own throne. 
for Adonijah, his father just could not die soon enough. He wanted the throne, he wanted the crown, he wanted the kingdom, and he wanted to pry it now out of his father's weakened grasp. Hurt like that. Betrayal like that. Inflicted by your own son at your expense, at your time of greatest need, it must have tasted bitter. But hurt like that must have hurt a whole lot worse when he got the news that Abiathar, the man who with red, shocked, tired eyes, who had sought refuge at David's doorstep so many years before, Abiathar had linked arms with Adonijah to help him in his rebellion over David. Psalm 41, just read for us, is written by David, a man who knows what it feels like to be betrayed. There's no prescript in this psalm telling us where exactly in the life of David this comes from. It could be this story here with Abiathar and Adonijah. It could be with King Saul, a man David gave his, uh, risked his life in order to protect only for Saul to try to take his. It could have been uh, referring to Absalom, the first of David's son, to conduct an uprising over his father. It could have been the betrayal of Ahithophel, David's political advisor, who joined Absalom in that first uprising. We don't know. But that's not the point. The point is, is that David, if you read through his life, you know one thing for certain. This man knows what it feels like to be betrayed. We'll be looking at three things together this morning. Betrayal is one. Blemish and blessing are the other two. So all together, betrayal, blemish, and blessing. I'd like to ask you to pray with me one more time before we continue. Father, we come asking for you to speak to us in this moment. We ask, Lord, that you would do the mighty work of warming our hearts to you. Lord, peek our ears to what you would have to say to us. By your spirit, for the glory of your son, we pray. Amen. So, betrayal, blemish, and blessing. We're going to look at betrayal first because it's the thing here that really sets the scene for the rest of what unfolds in this psalm. And verse 5 kind of serves as a slow warm-up to this idea of betrayal. So, verse 5, we see David telling us, My enemies say in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Do you have an enemy? An enemy that not merely wants your ailments to increase, your relationships to wither, your career to take a nosedive, but one that wants your very life to cease? If so, your enemy is still not as vengeful, vengeful as David's. 
David's enemies did not merely want David's heart to stop beating. They wanted his name. And everything that is bound up in that concept of his name, his character, his personality, his possessions, his accomplishments, his whole family line, they wanted him to die and his very name to perish. Gone from every record of every mind throughout the history of the world, David is no more. That's not a good feeling. That's not a good feeling at all, especially when you are sitting two feet away from your so-called friends who have come to visit you in your time of need and who, with a look of care in their eyes, words of love upon their lips, they possess the exact same sentiment in their hearts as your enemies do who stand outside your gate. Verse 6 is the punch in the gut that we all know betrayal to be. It says, when one comes to me to see me, he utters empty words. Just imagine that. You're suffering from illness, and not mere headache, not mere fever, but painful, relentless, I might not actually recover from this type illness. Your friend comes to your door. He pulls up a chair. He sits down. And all the while, you know the very thing that motivated this visit is his bothersome question inside of, when will this man die? And any of the words you hear in that moment are those which roll off the tongue of a snake who just as soon bite your hand and inject his venom than grab the, to- the cool rag to wipe down your wearied brow. This is betrayal. And this is what David knows is the purpose of this bedside visit. It's to see him in pain and to gather material for gossip. Verse 6 continues. He says, He utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. And when he goes out, he tells it abroad. He goes out and he says, You should have seen him. The guy's a goner. He can't even get himself out of bed. like to see him wield his sword now. And look, David gives us no physical uh, painful uh, details here. This is not the words of Psalm 38 with the burning sides and the tumultuous groaning. We hear no details of what's going on with him physically. Why is it? Why does he not give us that detail? It's because the pain that's occupying the forefront of his mind right now is not physical. He just keeps pouring out the details. Verse 7, all who hate me whisper together. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. It's them. As David lays in his illness, it's them. It's them that is gnawing away at him. It's their words that is eating him alive. It's those individuals. That is what is on his mind in this moment. And the whole thing 
it just rises in degrees. It starts with his enemies. There's pain there to have enemies, but no surprise, they're your enemies. And then it's his visitors. There's pain there and some surprise. But then the pain and the surprise both hit their climax with this. My close friend wants me gone. Verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted his heel against me. This was the hardest thing for David to endure, the betrayal of someone in whom he trusted. This was the wound that for David struck the deepest, and it was able to strike the deepest because it did not come from without, but from within. For what you have with betrayal is a bringer of pain who you have actually invited into your home. You have actually sat down to dinner. You have actually offered your bread to. Only for him to lift his heel against you. With betrayal, you do not have time to put up defenses like you would in the presence of your enemy. With betrayal, you have no time to brace yourself as you would in the presence of your foe. Your mind is not prepared to compute the details of such an occasion. Everything in you just wants to scream out, error, 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 something is wrong here. This person associated with this feeling, they just, they can't go together, right? They've never gone together, right? Well, they do now. And it often takes a long time sitting in the reality of it all before you can even begin to come to grips with it. That's the reality that David is wrestling with here in this psalm. Now, this brings us to our second part, because this reality, it can go together with the content of what we see in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. This type of pain, it seems, can, can go together with what verse 4 is saying. Verse 4 shows us that this pain that David is experiencing is distinct from a pain earlier on in the Old Testament that looks strikingly familiar. That's the pain of Job. If you're familiar with the story of Job, you'll remember that Job was a good man who loved God and had a good life. And in a matter of hours, his life, like his whole life, gets absolutely destroyed. His friends, like David's friends, come to visit him. As conversation begins and words are exchanged, it becomes clear to Job and becomes clear to the reader that these friends actually make far greater enemies. David's situation resembles that of Job's. But it's distinct. It's different 
Because for Job, Job could not look back on his life and see one particular sin. Now, Job was a sinner. So has every human being been since Adam and Eve. Job was a sinner. But he could not look back on his life and see any one circumstance that he felt like could bring about this type of divine discipline in his life. David is different because David can. David could say, verse 4, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And when he said that word sin, real images started to pop up in his head. Real memories started to come back into his mind. David knows exactly when and where he has fallen short. So this type of pain, it, it, it can mix with this type of sin that he is feeling. He's confessed this sin, but this sin still may warrant the divine discipline that David is feeling. He knows that, and that's why he appeals to grace. O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me for I have sinned. Grace is, by definition, a gift you do not deserve. A thing, when requested, carries no obligation toward the one of whom it is requested to provide it. Grace is a thing that comes one way and one way only, as a gift to a person who has done nothing to deserve it. David says, be gracious to me. I have sinned. I am not like Job. I can look at my life and see my error. I can see my sin. And so I'm appealing to your grace. He can look and see the sin, but all the same, he says, Lord, would you lift this discipline that I'm feeling in this moment? I know that I have sinned, but would you take this pain away that I'm experiencing? I know that what I'm asking for is something I have no right to ask you for, but all the same, would you give it? What if David worshipped a God who said no to such a request? What if David said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me, and the God who David worshipped said no? Then, we would expect his sickbed to become his deathbed to become his bed of everlasting shame. There would be no victory for David, no redemption for David, no release from the rejoicing of his enemies. He would lay his body down in the dust with his enemies dancing upon his head, saying a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise from where he lies. 
and it really makes you wonder, surrounded by such a chorus of despairing voices, how David even managed to hold out any hope at all. See, David knows he's a sinner. And he also knows one more thing. He knows who his God is. And he knows how his God deals with those who know themselves to be sinners and confess it. And that brings us to our third section, blessing. Verse 1, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Picture such a truth rolled out like a banner, just bold and bright across the walls of David's room. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. David is such a man who has considered the poor, from Abiathar to Mephibosheth to 400 others who David took in while staying in his cave at Adullam. Everyone who the Bible says was in distress, in debt, or bitter in soul. David took them in in their weakness. He took them in in their poverty, took them in in their need, and he considered them. He cared for them. He protected them. And now, he is the one who is in need. He is the one who is in distress. He is the one who feels incredible weakness. And he's saying, Lord, would you now do the same to me? It's very important for us to understand, David is not asking for something he deserves here. He's not saying, I took care of the poor, therefore you have to take care of me. This isn't a transactional statement here, for our God does not provoke his people to good works like these, like he's holding out some sort of carrot on a string in front of us. That's not how our God works. To, to quote Pastor David Mathis, our God does not lay out a crass system of rewards in which one action earns an enticement that's unrelated to that action. He's not trying to appeal to our desire for long life just to get us to do something we don't really want to do. David's not saying, I did this, therefore you need to do that. Rather, David is recognizing our God calls us to do things like consider the weak, consider the poor, because that's what he does. This is not an arbitrary action here that David is pointing to. It's a reflection of the very nature of God, a being who considers the weak and the poor. It's called good by him. It has value because our God does it. And you and me created in his image. We are made in his image to reflect his image here. How do we do that? By behaving the way he calls us to. He considers the poor, we consider the poor. He looks in kindness upon the weak, we look in kindness upon the weak. And what else could make our heart so happy, so blessed, is actually using it the way God intended us to use it? And that's what David is getting at. Because that's what David has done. 
Not perfectly, of course not perfectly. But what David is saying here, when he says, I've considered the poor, blessed is the one who considered the poor, what David is saying here is this, look, my life looks at this way because I am yours. I have sought to live by your precepts, O Lord, one of which is consideration for the poor. And when I've failed, I've sought to live by your provisions, O Lord. Grace, when I confess my sins. My life looks this way because I am yours. I'm caring for the poor. I'm confessing my sin because you have done something in me. And it's saying, if I am yours, then care for me like I am yours. Protect me like I am yours. Show my enemies that I am yours and you are God. That's what David is getting at here. And that's why the words of David's enemies stung so badly. Because their desire for him to lose his life, that was an offense to the very one who promised to keep it. Their hope that he would not rise again was an offense to the very one who said, I will do the rising. God calls his people, even in their hurt, even in their doubt, even in their fear, he looks at them and he calls them blessed. David's enemies were looking at the same picture of the same individual and they were saying, no, not blessed. Broken. Broken. And as they did that, they were telling a lie about who David's God is. They were telling a lie and committing a mockery of how our God takes care of us, his people. And unfortunately... Their mockery, their lie is something we all are all too familiar with. Doesn't it seem like the times in your life when you are most trying to live according to the precepts of the Lord? Again, one of them here would be consideration of the poor. The time in your life you're most trying to live that way, isn't that the time when you feel it's most difficult to, for you to do so? You're most running against the grain. You're most swimming against the current. Isn't the time when you are most trying to cling to God's provision of grace? You feel a sin weighing you down. And you're trying to cling to, I know he forgives sinners. I know he forgives sinners. Isn't that the moment when it's most difficult to truly trust that? What's going on here for David is similar to what goes on in our own hearts because we, like David, have an enemy. One who wants our lives to end and our names to be blotted out of the book. 
And in this time when you feel most worn down, most discouraged, most like giving up, most like saying, I've had it trying to be a bright light in this world. I just feel like a tiny little speck lost in the darkness of a cave and I'm done. The time when you feel like that is this time your enemy would most love for you to turn the volume up on his laughter. The time when he would most love for you to think himself the one who is triumphant. The time he would love for you to have written across the walls of your room, he has been laid down and he will not rise. In that moment, your enemy would love to think your father has left you. It's out of the heart of that moment that David says, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. We say, yeah, David, but what about as your enemies are dancing upon your grave? Right? David made it out of this situation here in Psalm 41, but we all know David eventually died. I think we can be fairly certain when David died, he still had enemies. And it would make sense for when David's enemies heard about the death of David, that they themselves would rejoice and say, aha, we called it. The one who prayed, O Lord, be gracious to me, raise me up. That David eventually found a time in his life in which his body would be laid down. So what about the words, raise me up? By this I know you delight in me. You'll raise me up. And here's the thing. Like David, you and I will both, we will all encounter a time in our days here when our days here will end. We will face difficulties. God will likely raise us out of those difficulties, but eventually our days here will end. What about the words, by this I know, you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. What about those words? I want to tell you about those words because they are at this very moment on the very lips of David and not as a request, but as a boast. You, God, did have mercy on me. You, God, did give me grace. You, my Father, right now, delight in me. You dance in triumph with me, and I know it because I can see it on the smile of your face. Brothers and sisters, David right now is dancing. He says, verse 12, you have set me in your presence. David right now is seeing it. He's in it. For when God sets a person in his presence, he, not, he does not do so with an aim to reverse his decision. 
You may feel yourself in pain and in difficulty. And when in those moments, it may seem as if God has turned his face away. But rest assured, my friends, he is smiling upon you in that moment, just the same as he always has for all of eternity. Your God never stops smiling upon the ones who he has bought. You have ever been in his mind as an object of his grace, ever in his mind as a child to be redeemed, ever in his mind as one whom he would rejoice over in glory. You, brothers and sisters, will dance in glory with David. And a hundred million years from now, when our great enemy has bit the dust and just barely began to taste the wrath of our God, we, you and I, will still be dancing in triumph and glory. And King David will be there with us, for our God has triumphed over the grave. How great it will be, brothers and sisters, to sit in the presence of our holy and happy God. For David was a sinner. David did not deserve the Lord's kindness, and neither do we. David confessed his sin to the Lord. He did not deserve it, and so do we. We confess our sin to the Lord. This mercy that David cried out for, this mercy that we grab onto in this moment, this mercy was bought by a man who tasted the bitter cup of disloyalty that we might drink from the sweet cup of salvation. A man who today, right now, says to you and to me, like David before him, stay with me. Do not be afraid. The one who sought my life now seeks yours. He sought my life. I would not give it to him. He seeks yours. I will not give him yours either. Brothers and sisters in Christ, today you have sorrow. Today you have pain. Today you have worry. Today you have doubt. Today you have enemies. And one day your body will be put down in the ground, but you will not be there to see it because you will be with your Father in glory in the city that has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God will give its light. His lamp will be the lamp. And you will know that because you will see it. Because you will see his face, his name will be on your forehead, and night will be no more. You will need no light, you will need no lamp, you will need no sun. For the Lord God will be your light. And you and I and all who call on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins will reign forever and ever with him. Because the mercy you appeal to was bought by a man who knows what it's like to be betrayed. The mercy David appealed for was bought by a man who knew what it felt like to be betrayed. A man who tasted the bitter cup of disloyalty served him by a man who ate his bread, rejected his words, sold him for silver, and sealed his betrayal with a kiss. And this, of course, brings us to the table. Would you pray with me? Father, we come in here today 
perhaps feeling a bit like David. We feel as if the enemy's triumphal laughter over us is real. We sometimes feel like it is accurate. We sometimes feel like he is winning. But God, you have freed us to live like you in this world. You have freed us to live by your precepts, to live by your provisions, to consider the weak and the poor. You have freed us to do so because we know as your heart, we know that that is how you care for us. No matter the chorus around us, God, we know. We know we will rise. We know that you are the one who is triumphant. Give us grace to believe that increasingly each and every day we live. In your name we pray. Amen.